My name's Josh. I'm the pastor here, and I get to teach. We've been going through Nehemiah. If it's your first time, just know uh, we as a church, we don't do this every time, but the majority of the time we come to a Sunday, we're looking at a, the next section in a book of the Bible that we've chosen to open up. So here's sort of the schedule we've been through this whole summer. We've been walking through Nehemiah, July 25th. That is today. We are on the dedication, and as you saw, Casey read a portion of a larger portion. I'm supposed to teach through chapters 10, 11, and 12. So buckle up. It's going to be a fun ride. But next week is the last week of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13. And then we're going to jump back into the gospel of John. And what is the dedication about? What is today all about? Um, a little story. I have four little boys. I'm a very decent dad. Once in a while, I have a highlight where I think, all right, I think I nailed that moment. And I thought I nailed it. Recently, we we're on a road trip to California. The boys are fighting because they're in close proximity. And I said, boys, we're going to learn a new word today. Everybody say compromise, compromise. Do you know what compromise means? No, of course you don't. Compromise is you give up something for the sake of another. Compromise. All right, how can we compromise? We're in this thing for another five hours. How are we going to compromise? And they have yet to compromise once. <laughs> and yet Ozzy was listening. Ozzy's three. Anytime there's a dust up in the wad house, he yells out, compromise. I'm like... <laughs> Not the right spot for that, Ozzy. <laughs> Compromise. Chapters 10, 11, 12, come after Israel. Chapter 9 confesses to God all that they've been. And here's at the core of it. They have compromised. God chose a people through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and then Moses to put his special seal on so that they could be a special group of people here on earth to bless the rest of the world. And they were to follow his commands. They were to be shaped by him and him alone. They called him Yahweh. You are the Lord. We will listen to you. We will do what you say, how you say to do it, when you say to do it. And yet, Nehemiah is the end chronologically of basically the Old Testament. It's around 400 B.C. But it's the end of the Old Testament as we know it, because then God goes silent for 400 years and then birth of baby Jesus. But at the end of it all, Old Testament, here's what they realize. We've compromised. We've done what we shouldn't do. We have compromised to the people around us. We have become more like them than they have become like us, trying to be like you. We are compromisers, and that's a problem. So last week was the confession. God, I'm sorry. So, so sorry. And they were genuine and sincere. And now chapters 10, 11, 12 is okay. Those of you that are parents in the room, you don't just want a sorry. In fact, when you hear a lot of sorry without change, it's like, all right, this is a problem. We don't just want words. We want change of actions. We want sorry and a change. Chapters 10, 11, 12 is now Israel saying, here's how we're going to be different. I promise. I swear. Scout's honor. So I just want to give you an overview because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to camp out on basically what Casey read to shape our time this morning. But chapter 10 is this. It's the commitment of the people. Them saying, here's what we're going to do. And I want you to look at a few verses. So go to chapter 9, verse 38, just so you see where I'm pulling this from. But this is shapes all of chapter 10. Chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all this, post-confession, we screwed up. We're ba our bad. We make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Pause right there. And then most of chapter 10 is the actual signatures. Joshua Watt, Paul, James. We agree that that confession is right, and we agree that the changes we're going to make were lined up. So that's what chapter 10 is. Who's in on this change, people of God? 
Chapter 11, go to verse 11 there, or verse 1. What is this? Now they're trying to repopulate the city because uh, the, the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is more like a general contractor. He gets the wall rebuilt. So the wall's rebuilt, the temple's done, so there's a spot to worship, but people are still kind of trickling back because it's a shell of its former self. Like I had a family member just go to Portland, uh, and they're like, man, Portland is rough right now. Post-riots and all that, like, it's a little bit like, gosh, this is not what I remember. And Israel, Jerusalem is not what they remember. And now, verse 1 of chapter 11, they're like, all right, but we need some people to go back. This is what happened. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. So the leaders are already there, setting the pace. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. While nine out of ten remained in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. We're going to be better. We are going to be the people of God. And we're going to be the people of God in the land that God has given us. And we're going to cast lots. That's their way to let God decide. One out of ten. They give a tithe of people. Let's go back. It's a little like this church plant started. A few people said, you know what? We're going to come and be a part of this. Our life is comfortable where it's at, but we're coming to be a part of what we think God is doing by the Spirit. And they're doing that here in a mass sort of way. And then what's chapter 12? People are back in the city. It's the sort of end of youth camp. Like, yeah. It's going to be so much better, so much better, so much better. Go to verse 27. This is the people of God doing what the people of God should do is celebrate. Chapter 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, with cymbals, with harps, with lyres. They just party. They worship. Go to verse 43 of that same chapter. This is how great of a celebration it was. Post, we're committed. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. The cities around hear them celebrating. What is that? It's the people of God getting back to the work that the people of God should be about. Being a light in a dark world, right at the center. Israel's right in the center of all that's going on in the world. In verse 45, how do they accomplish that? Because people are in their places. People are in their lanes doing what they're supposed to be doing. And they perform the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers, the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. So that's an overview. We make a commitment. All right, who's going in to actually like live this out in the land? All right, we'll roll some dice. All right, you're going. Hernandez family, you're going. It was great having you, but enjoy Jerusalem. All right, we're here. What do we do now? We celebrate because we're back, and we're going to do it better than ever. Israel 2.0, let's do this. And that's Nehemiah, and that's where we're at. And now as we zero in on what Casey read, we're going to see what do they actually commit to. What did they say? Here's what I'm signing my name on behalf of. What do I want to be held responsible for? So let's go back to chapter 10, and we'll spend the rest of the time here. I'm basically going to do two things this morning. Answer the question, what commitments do they make in this context? And then kind of listening to this story going on for us in this room. What sort of consideration should we make after listening to the people here? So let's go and just, what's the commitment they make? Chapter 10, verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law 
of God. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God in his rules and his statutes. Pause right there. What are they committing to? To do the law of God. How much of it? All of it. Elijah, Roman, Judazi, how sorry are you? Very sorry. What are you going to do different? We're going to be perfect from here on out. We will do everything you say, I promise. Just don't take away Rocket League, please. <laughs> how serious are they? They commit, they sign their names, and they say there will be a curse if we don't do this. This goes back to Deuteronomy 28 in the Moses days. He gives the law. He's like, all right, you guys are signing on this, people of God, and there's two mountains, and one mountain a bunch of people get on, another mountain the rest of people get on, and the blessings are one mountain, and the curses are another mountain. Like, here's the blessings we're going to receive if we follow this. Here's all the curses. And they basically experience all the curses because they didn't do it. But they're re-signing it. They're re-upping. They're like, all right, we are so serious, and whatever curse comes upon us from God, we are agreeing to. They're serious. Oh, But here's just what's fascinating now, is they sort of now summarize. All right, but for us, like for us, Israel and Jerusalem around 400 B.C., what do we need to particularly highlight to actually be a distinct people? If our problem was compromise, we did what they were doing and we shouldn't have, how do we not compromise and live faithfully to God? What do we need to do? And this is just a fascinating section because it teaches you sort of how to read the Bible correctly. Because some of you may or may not know this, but most of the Bible, like the history, the, like the narrative arc is not that long. It's basically the first five books of the Old Testament and the first five books of the New Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Jesus books, and then Acts is the church book. And like if you put those together, that's basically kind of the history of what's going on in the Bible. So we're in Nehemiah, which is basically what they're doing is they're looking back to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and saying, what did God originally want us to be? They're not inventing new laws. They're not recreating the wheel. They're like, what did he originally call us to do? Just like us as the church in Acts, what did God want us to be? And they're looking back, and they're like, okay, here's what he wanted from us. What's our current situation? What do we do about it? One guy said, He says this, new cultural circumstances demand that covenant faithfulness take different forms throughout history. Because basically what I'm going to walk through now, pretty quickly, is the specific commands. And here's what he says about them, this particular author. There are seven laws implemented in this section. And none of them correspond precisely to any specific law in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament. Rather, each one represents a sort of interpretive summary of multiple differing laws on the same topic or the formulation of a new law or a new need based on the interpretation of an older law. I know that's a lot of words, but basically, we're looking at the Constitution of the United States and trying to figure out for today, what does it mean to us? They're looking at their Constitution. Okay, what do we need to focus on? And most of it's a sort of summary reconfiguration of, okay, now for us, 400 B.C., how are we going to? do this. It's just fascinating that this is what they landed on. Three major things. Marriage, Sabbath, temple worship, specifically how much money it cost to do church back in the day. That's fascinating. Marriage, Sabbath, church. 
Like, if we were back here, we could figure out life and do life better if we did. Those three things, according to them. So let's just walk through and just see where I'm getting this from. Verse 30. Here's their first sort of, all right. For us, here's what we need to be about right now. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. In other words, we will not intermarry. And that could go sideways quickly. Like, there's no ethnic crossing in marriage. Like, I've heard that biblical argument, mostly from clowns, but there's some people who, is that what they're saying? Like, we don't want any sort of cross-cultural contamination because that particular ethnicity is worse, and this is supreme. It's like, you got to kind of do business. The reality is God was pretty clear about this throughout the time of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy, he says it. First Kings is a good summary of what God wanted and why he was about this sort of regulation. It says this. You shall not into, in, into marriage with them, other nations. Neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Case in point, Solomon clung to these in love. You shall not intermarry because they worship other gods. And as you get synced up with some and become one, according to the Bible, what's theirs and what's their priorities and what their heart is about will become what your heart is about. And they said, look at Solomon. He had all these wives with all these different gods, and his heart was constantly turned away from Yahweh. So we, the people of God, 2.0, we are not going to give our daughters and our sons away to other countries with other gods is the first thing they come up with. Now, just know, the people of God are knuckleheads always, perpetually. So even like Malachi is a prophet around this time who, who speaks into this cultural moment. And I think they took it and they way over and they took like a green light, like I can just divorce however, whenever. And then Malachi had to recorrect him like, no, 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 no. You didn't, they didn't say anything about divorce. They just said, from here on out, we're not going to cross Mary anymore. So that's the first thing we see. So... You want to be a committed Jew in 400 B.C., you can't marry a Persian. That's rule number one, according to them. Let's go to verse 31. And I like how it just describes kind of the other nation. The peoples of the land. So all the people around us. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every date. Pause there. We will do Sabbath better. Specifically, we will not buy, sell, and trade with foreigners on Sabbath. That's fascinating. Like, how are we going to get back on track? Marriage thing, and then the, like, the most moral thing that applies to everyone in the room is Sabbath regulation for the people of God. Why? Sabbath is there from the beginning. Like, Genesis 2 if you can, flip over there because I want, we're going to talk a lot about Sabbath today just so we can kind of see it with our own eyes. Genesis chapter 2, it's back in the beginning of the book. This is where we get Sabbath in a still perfect world. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. God had created in six days and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God had rested from his work and all he had done in creation. Pause there. Exodus 20, flip over. It's just the next book over. And this will be the end of flipping. We'll go back to 
Nehemiah and just camp out there. Exodus 20, verse 8. So in creation, this is how God did it. He worked hard for six days, and then he rested, and he blessed it. And he said, this is how life works. Work hard, work hard, work hard, rest, and bless that last day. And then he builds it into his law code. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Like Sabbath is a real deal. In 400 B.C., the Jews say, all right, particularly in Sabbath, what do we need to focus on? And they said, we need to stop trading with outsiders on the Sabbath day. And more than that, every seventh year, we need to have a Sabbath year. Stop work for an entire year. You're like, amen. <laughs> like COVID has done that to some people in an unhealthy way that I talk to. Like, no, no, no. Work is normal and good and God-given. But he tells us to rest and rest the land. Why? So that the land can rest. Because God loves creation more than the greenest person on earth. Let the land rest. And let the foreigners and the poor people around kind of have their pickings of the land during this time. And you guys aren't doing it. We're going to commit. No more working on Sabbath. No more buying, selling, trading. And every seven years we're going to let the land rest and we're going to cancel all the debts. Fascinating. And what's the third thing we see? This one's a little more involved. Verse 32 through 39. But essentially, it's all around temple worship. Verse 32, let's just read it together. We also take on ourselves the, selves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Pause right there. See what's happening? And all the people got to give all the stuff so that church can happen. Everything that's going to be required for the new moons, for the Sabbaths, for the appointed feasts, anything that would be used in a worship situation, all the people signing this document are saying, we're going to be a part of bringing this so that worship can happen at the center of this new Jerusalem. Next one, verse 34. And it's not just the people. It's the kind of called out, separated religious leaders. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's house at the times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Pause right there. So, like, we use the word apply. Does this apply to us? No, we're not burning anything anymore. But in their context, what is it, it going to take to get back to robust, full worship? Okay, everyone needs to be in on this. And the priest Levites, we've got all these burnt offerings. We need to figure out. They left no stone unturned. We're going to cast lots. That's the way to figure out. What's the system? Who's organized? It's the meal train. Somebody just had a baby. How do we get meals to this person? Okay, who's bringing the wood? They figured out who's going to be bringing the wood for this as well. Just fascinating how the, this is what it means to be the church. Like, what does God want from us? To be holy and distinct, a light amongst the world. Okay, what is that going to take? Sometimes it's very specific details. Like, Chandler, you're bringing the wood on August 8th. If you don't, let's keep reading. Verse 35. 
We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes, that means a tenth, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we labor. And we're going to start bringing back the tithe. A tithe means a tenth. Jewish, up to this point, Jewish sort of regulation, it was around 23 to 27% of their income kind of went to running Israel, which was both a political thing and a religious thing at this point. So a tithe, they gave far more than a tithe. But they're like, here's how we're going to get this system back up and running. We're going to give the best the first fruits, not the leftover bucks we have, the first. Like I remember, I was shaped so much by my dad. He came to faith later in life. I was an older teenager. And like immediately, his life is completely different. And one of the things is he starts giving money away. He was never stingy, but like, and he's old school. He writes a check, probably, is probably the only person who puts a check in the back right now. But he writes a check every week. And if he missed, he was sick, he would make one of us kids go to church and put in his and it was the first construction guy, the first amount of money he made for the week. The first, the best, not the leftovers. In verse 38, keep reading. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites. And when the, when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are. That's all the sort of religious center of where stuff happens. As well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. Here's the summary statement. We will not neglect the house of our God. We have compromised. And part of our compromising was neglecting worship. Specifically, like actual tangible worship. How we were supposed to get up and go and bring the first of stuff and give it to religious leaders so they could perform ceremonies on our behalf. We've neglected that. We commit to do better. So that's what they commit to. That's how the Old Testament ends. With the, the, the Old Testament Israel story, if you trace it down to like, okay, what did they end on? How did they see their lives moving forward? We're going to not intermarry. We're going to do Sabbath better, and worship is going to be at the center again because of our work to make it happen. And that's what they do. And then they sing this song in chapter 12. Yes, praise you. Chandler gets up. Everyone just happy, go lucky. It's amazing. Chapter 13, they fail in every single thing I just read. Any good storyteller would have ended on chapter 12. It would have been like this couple who went through this infidelity and they were unfaithful and they did the work. And, they, and the movie would end with them kind of holding hands, walking off like, I knew it. They are going to make it. That's chapter 12. And chapter 13 is they trip and fall and get in a fight and divorce seconds later. Because that's, we're just, we're boneheads. And even our commitments we can't keep. Like, so what do we learn from this? Here's what I don't want us to do. It's like, this is how I'm going to get my life back in order. This is it. Because here's the thing. They, they had the right prescription and assessment of their situation. 
Like, I think they nailed the things that they should be doing differently to be distinct. They just still didn't have the heart and the spirit within them and this person named Jesus who could actually help them accomplish the task at hand. Does that mean we close this book and say, we can't learn from these guys? Or we sit in their moment and try to learn and assess our own situation. Like, what can we learn from them? We're not here to become religious people. Like this quote of a guy I really like, Pastor, he says, if you win people to biblical principles, which we're going to talk about, but fail to win them to the biblical Christ, you will simply create religious people who lack the power to change. We'll just create tidy unbelievers. So what I'm going to walk through now are five considerations, and not five considerations on how to be the greatest Christian in the world, but listening to this text, what should we consider here in this moment, thousands of years later, with the same calling that Israel had? To be a worshiping community, to be a faithful witness, right smack dab in the center of a dark world with people who do not agree or see the world the way we see it. How do we remain faithful while not leaving, but staying right where we're at? That's what we're going to walk through. So what do we take for our context is the question that I want to end our time with. If you're a note taker, I've got five. But here's what I take as I prayerfully kind of learn from our brothers and sisters back in the day. Here's the first one. We should consider where our name is written down. What do I mean by that? So like... We are very individualistic in this country. Like out of all the countries in the world and all the times that have ever existed, this is probably the the high point of individualism right here in this room. We can all just agree, and if you disagree, then you'll have some individualistic answer to give me that proves my point. But (laughs) like the way people became Christians back in the day is like they did it tribally. Like in all these pagan tribes that got converted by, you know, St. Patrick. We drink a lot of Guinness on that. St. Patrick went to convert all these tribes. And all he had to do was prove that his God was better than the gods that they were worshiping. Once they did, the whole tribe shifted over. And they're following. Even so, in Europe, all the countries became Christian under the same sort of banner. There was a Catholic country. And then if the king or queen changed to a Protestant, then the whole country shifted. And now we're all Protestant. It was all very group and communal. And so a couple feisty little future Americans are like, oh, I don't like this. Let's go to another land and do it our way. Yeah. These pilgrims came over here and they're like, yeah, no one's going to tell us how to do this. Church of England, we'll do, we want to be Baptists or whatever we want. We want to go to church once every six weeks and no one else consider that we're wrong at all. We want to do it our way. And that's what America was built on, religious individualism, which is fine. But we have to consider like, I think we need to swing the pendulum back a little towards a more communal, these are my people. Like, I don't think we all get saved together at the same moment. I don't think theologically that's how it works. But I think the fact that we're so individual, like within homes, spouses, completely different pages. Like, we just all get to think what we want to think about the things we want to think about. And Nehemiah, as much as anything, has convicted me big time of the fact that the people of God are a communal people. Like, we're, we're doing this together. Like, this is us. This is a group thing. But this section in particular convicted me also that it's not a nameless group. This is what's fascinating. Verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 38, because of this, we make a covenant in writing. And then chapter 10. 
On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher. Most of why I didn't teach all this chapter is it's a bunch of names none of us are going to remember. But what I take from that, they're very communal. It's a group, but there's individuals signing their name. I'm in on this. Like, Americans do not think like that. Because what that means is the curse. We promise we'll take the blessing if we're faithful and we'll take the curse. Pashariah is going to take the curse for the sins. That's fascinating. That's an Eastern way to think. That's not a Western way to think. And both need to be critiqued, but we need to be critiqued that we get to kind of, from a distance, just individually judge and kind of, yeah, but that's them. Like, when have you ever been implicated recently by a group sort of decision? Like, that is the most anti-American, like, oh, that wasn't me. I'll tell you who it was, and I'll tell you what news source they were getting their information from. I'll tell you. Like, where is your name written down where you get the reward and the consequence together? That's what we see here. We're doing this. And it's not... Signed, Israel, they group. Signed, Anthony Hernandez, ride or die, North Mountain. Josh Watt, ride or die. Clayton Brenner, ride or die. Amy Blackwell. That's just fascinating because this does not happen in our society. It happens in marriage, and that's about it. And even there, people take advantage. Where is your name written down? Like, I'm not somebody who's saying... We got to do everything together all the time. Like some of my favorite people in the valley are pastors who pastor churches that I would never go to. Because the way they talk about community is like, I ain't about that. I don't have that much time to like be around while you're changing your kids' diapers. And like I, I'm, I got other stuff. Like it's not a we're moving in in some communal bunk bed sort of thing. Like the illustration I like to use is we are like these Lego pieces, the little connectors. And we all have a certain amount of connectors we can kind of have. And all right, I'm full. Like my plate is full relationally. Like knowing what your is, but doing that within the context of church community and making that factor into your life and your decisions is kind of part of what being the life of the church is, what Joe was talking about with all the one another's. But where is your name written down? Is it written down in a church membership somewhere? Is it written down in any discipleship relationships where you're committed, they're committed, we're going to do this. We're going to disciple each other. Is it written down in any serving teams or nonprofits in the area? Like where are you committed? In writing, I'm with this community. We should consider. That's how it worked here. And that's part of the story that they got right. It's actually living out the actions that they got wrong. But this part they, they nailed. Here's the next thing we should consider. We should consider more filters on the voices we let in. They were told not to intermarry strictly because of worship. How was a man, how's a man living in 1800s who lives in Black Canyon City, who's a sheep herder, get his information and stuff in his heart 200 years ago? He's got to get on his horse and go find information and, or he marries somebody And they kind of sync up. 
That's why the Jews were told not to intermarry, because how are they getting information? How are they getting anything from the outside world? Marriage is kind of the key way to get into the home, which is just a fascinating way to think about, okay, how does that even correlate today? Because every voice in the world has full access inside my home right now because of the internet. Like so much so, I led a parenting class a while back, and I had these two dads, very different. One dad said, we do not have internet. He was raising four teenage boys. I'm like, whoa, that's intense. Why? Because that's how the world gets into my home. I'm like, all right. Another dad said, ah, I got to teach him how to use all this. And this guy I thought was a kook. But as my kids get older, I'm like, he's on to something. And I don't want an Amish church. I wouldn't go to that church either, but... I'm trying to be helpful in thinking through this. Like, think about this. Can you even identify the voices that are getting in to your ears, your heart? Like, could you list them all? Like, here's, like, political voices, news voices, social media voices, lifestyle voices, religious voices. Like, could you do an assessment of here's all the nutrients coming into my home? Here's a way to... This came to me in the shower last night, which I was like, thank you, Lord. This is nice. I'll see if it works. <laughs> but how do I even categorize? What kind of voices? I came in, and it was three F, so it's like a total preacher thing. Like, which voices are promoting, promoting fear in you? Like, the voices you're listening to, not a fear of the Lord, just fear. Just like, I mean, I don't have to connect many dots for you. That's like most of what I see when there's a talking head talking about something. So which voices are promoting fear in you? Next one. Which voices are promoting fantasies in your head? Like the, the low-hanging fruit on this is pornography, obviously. We don't want that. But there's all sorts of ways like the world is like, yeah, life would be better if. Life would be better if. Life would be better if. Or friendship. Which of the voices are promoting friendship with the world? James says you can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. They don't, they don't coexist. And the way it's happening for me is like whoever tells the best story wins. Essentially is how the world works. In politics and whatever. And there's a lot of good stories being told about lifestyles and things and convictions that people have that are opposite of what I think the Bible says about stuff. And I can just feel like, I feel for people through stories. And there's a sort of friendship and a sympathy and an empathy, and that's good. I don't want a bunch of jerky people. But we got, especially with our younger people, being drawn away by like, ah, but, such a beautiful story. Fear, fantasy, friendship. Like, can you identify the voices coming into your life, into your heart, into your home, into your kids' hearts and homes? That's what they were talking about with intermarriage. They, didn't, they were pretty cut and dry. Like, here's how all these voices got in here. We all married a bunch of foreigners who were worshiping that God and that God and that God. That's how worship changed. Now it's way more like we've chosen to let voices in. Have we done the work to kind of identify them? And here's what next you got to do. I think you got to remove some of them. Like, just flat out, maybe you'll be that crazy guy, no internet. God bless you. I may become that pretty soon. 
But I, I, as I was praying for us this morning, this thought came to mind. Our church is never going to struggle from having enough information. We're good Bible teaching church. We've got information. We all have access to lots of information is never going to be our problem. It's going to be elimination. Like the stuff we've chosen not to eliminate from our lives is going to be the thing that gets in here. What have you removed lately? And then here's the hard part. This is sort of discipleship and parenting. Some of you don't remove, but a lot of them you have to process through together. Like I watched this fascinating documentary on late night talk shows, kind of the evolution. We had Carson and then, you know, uh, my favorite, uh, Conan O'Brien and then Jimmy Kimmel and all these guys. And one of them said this fascinating thing. They said, we see our role as helping America process through all these big cultural events. The people of God, we're not to let late night hosts, as great as they are at that little gig they have, help us process through the culture. I watch you to laugh and then turn you off, not to make sense of the world. That's what this is for, and that's what this is for. But what are we, where are we processing all the voices together? That's why we have women's ministry and men's ministry, because you can kind of get more nitty-gritty about stuff. You need to be processing together. Here's the third thing. We should consider how we Sabbath. That could almost be the end point. Because God is so clear. Like as I read the Bible, I'm always fascinated. Like Sabbath, Genesis, Sabbath, Exodus. And whenever God just loses his mind, it's usually like, you did not Sabbath. It's like, what? It's like all these murders, crazy Old Testament stories. Like, and this guy's arm was chopped off and fed to an alligator in front of the whole crowd. And God's like, but you didn't Sabbath. <laughs> like, we got to do business with that. Again, America, fast pace. Go, 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 go. How do we Sabbath? Like, I remember teaching at a kind of youth event. There's some parents were there, too. And I was teaching through the Ten Commandments. And I just went hard on Sabbath because of what I read in the Scripture. And this mom afterwards was like, really? That's what you're going to go hard on after our kids? I'm like, Absolutely. Like, tell me when your daughter does her homework. Oh, of course, all weekend. Okay. And tell me about her anxiety levels. How's she doing there? Well, she's terrible. Like, I'm spending so much money on Okay. Like, and I, I don't want to oversimplify. I've got family history of mental health and anxiety and all that. But, like, God says, stop. Just stop. Just stop. And they found a way around it. They were trading with outsiders. How much more? I could buy something from Amazon right now while I'm preaching. Like, we just got to consider, what's our Sabbath look like? Here's a way to assess it. Could somebody learn how to Sabbath from following you around for a few weeks? That's called discipleship and possibly conviction. But that's how it's happening in my life, is I'm more and more convicted, like, my kids need to have a pace that God ordains and God has directed and God has cultivated, not the pace of the world and every new youth sports thing. Like, how do you do Sabbath? You're like, it could get very legalistic very quick. I get that. But we could be very unhealthy very quickly if we don't. The Old Testament ends with, you know what we need to do better? Sabbath. We've got to stop. We've got to be with God more takes us to our fourth point. It's very related. We should consider how to reflect more and consume less. 
Like that's what Sabbath was for, stopping. God did all the work six days. He stops and he just reflects on his own work. And he's like, oh man, this is awesome. This is blessed. And now we are supposed to do the same, reflect on God's creation, on our work, on our families, on all the things that lift up praise to God. We're supposed to stop and reflect more. Like create space for reflection in your life. Like kind of one of the leading think Christian thinkers, especially if you're in your 20s, is this guy, John Mark Comer. He wrote a great book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And it's hilarious because I see like 24-year-olds reading it who are like, you ain't hurried a bit in the last like four years of your life, but I, whatever. Another guy, Kevin DeYoung, far different camp. He's Midwest, reform guy, like very intellectual, writes big books. They both wrote books on kind of how do you do spiritual disciplines? And it's fascinating because they both, you read their books, oh, great, 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 and they both land on the same point. At the end of it all, here's what I'd want my people and you readers to do. Have a quiet time of reflection daily. Portland hipster, all the arts and all that, opposite of hipster, they land at the same. We need to reflect, not just Sabbath-wise, but daily, like space to reflect. Why? Because what's urgent drowns out what's important for all of us. That's a business principle that they use to train people in secular world. And it's also reality here. Like, what's important is God. Awareness of his presence. And the way you get there is through reflection. So we need to spend more time reflecting. Two ways to think about just stopping and reflecting. A Jewish rabbi said this, I like it. If you work with your mind, you should Sabbath with your hands. If you work with your hands, you should Sabbath with your mind. Meaning, the way you reflect doesn't have to mimic someone else. It's sort of opposite of the normal grain of what your six-day work is. Okay, how do you stop now in this day off, the Sabbath, to reflect? Again, we don't want to get legalistic, but we want to be faithful to what God says. And here's the fifth thing. We'll end here. We should consider the intention and the cost behind our worship. Like worship should be costly. Church life should be costly. You're like, ah. And not because we're trying to earn God's favor. Jesus did that for us. Jesus paid the ultimate cost. The cost was our lives. We owed to God. We were supposed to be faithful in all that he said that he wanted us to do and we were not. So he said the punishment is death. He said it in Genesis and he followed through with it. You shall die if you sin and we're all sinners. And who took the cost for us? Jesus. That cost has been paid. If we've placed our faith in Jesus, some of you have in this room, most of you I hope have, have placed your faith in Jesus. The cost that you owed God has been paid. But now to worship and to love him properly, it's costly and it's intentional. These people giving tithes and the best of their goats. Not the guy at the back who can't figure out how to go straight. This guy who was going to make us a killing. We give the best. We will not neglect the house of our God. God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our time. God doesn't need our resources. God does not need anything from us. And yet now in this moment, as saved people, people who have been, had the ultimate cost paid, we get to stop and we get to now create these worship moments back to him as a fragrance to say, thank you. What a beautiful gift. It's like my dad is the most master craftsman of all time. And he invites me into his work now. And he lets me pick up stuff and fumble around 
and make something that's far less beautiful than he could have done. But he says, now you get to worship me, Israel, and more now in this moment. We Christians saved by Jesus, filled with the spirit, we get to worship him with our money, with our time, with our intentions, with our thoughts. What a beautiful gift to be the church. Like we get to create a unique worship moment. People, worshiping people here, lifting of our praises to God. Not because anything any of us did in here to say, God say, you know what? Finally, they're the people that have nailed it. But just like them, if you turn the chapter in any of our lives, the next page we're screwing up. And God says, come and worship me. Christ has paid it all. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. God, shape us. We want to learn the lessons from the Bible that we need to learn. And we also want to rest in the beauty that we are on the other side of this story of Nehemiah. And we sit here and we no longer worship with goats and blood and offerings. We don't have to rely on one man on one day every year to go and take care of the biggest problem in our life, sin. But we get to come every week from whatever the last six days have brought us, sin, shame, guilt, successes, failures. We get to come every week and focus in on you, your son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate object of our worship now. And we don't do it haphazardly. Lord, we confess where we have been trivial and trite and chintzy with worship. God, we also don't want to just play religion to be impressive to others, but from our heart, we want to worship you sincerely. We want to give to you what you really deserve, and that's our worship. So God, take this little act of worship from this group of people as an offering. Imperfect, insufficient to buy us forgiveness or salvation. We get that. But we offer it to you right now. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this book that has been so formative in this little amount of time we got to spend in it. In Jesus' name I pray.